most of our kids, if given the opportunity, will shine their light and tell us, well, I really want to do art. I want to be an inventor. I need tools. I need options. I need the ability to learn more about dot, dot, dot. That actually has a name in, in homeschooling. It's called unschooling. Welcome to the Guy Who Knows a Guy podcast. I'm your host, Michael Whitehouse. Today we have a fascinating interview with Dr. Michelle Tishy. Dr. Tishy is an expert in educational psychology. She works with parents to help them unlock the amazing potential of their children to learn and grow. We discuss matters of education, new ways of learning, and what it's like to teach in the era of COVID. Stay tuned to the end of this episode for a sneak peek of the upcoming season of the podcast starting September 29th. Let's learn with Dr. Michelle Tishy. So I'm here today with Dr. Michelle Tishy of Dr. Mish Tish. How are you doing today, Dr. Tishy? I am doing very well, thank you. So tell us a little bit about your your business and uh, and who you help there. Yes. So my business name, um, Dr. Mish Tish, is an uh, umbrella uh, company name for my practice as an educational psychologist, specifically who works with parents and educators to help them um, connect in more um, heart-centered ways, in more mindful ways, and in um, ways that are aligned with the actual neuroscience and educational research on social-emotional learning and emotional intelligence. Um, and so especially in the midst of the current situation with the global uh, pandemic, I'm targeting parents who are working, parents who are trying to juggle having their kids at home, doing educational stuff while they're trying to work from home. And my expertise allows me to help them kind of navigate both the family and relational systems, as well as the more complicated aspects of the educational environment. So that sounds hugely important and very valuable to a lot of people right now. Um, so let's step back a minute. And how, how did you get into this field? So my field comes out of kind of a longstanding passion I've had to help create change in the world for children. And I started by um, doing work as a Head Start program manager right out of college. And then I decided to get my PhD in educational psychology to try to leverage a little more credentials behind my name to do this type of work in the world. Over the okay. <laughs> Over the last um, 16 years, I've become a mother. And mm -hmm. as a mom, I've also started seeing the value and importance of sharing the information I had professionally, not just with teachers and future teachers, but also with other parents. And out of that came my business. Great. Uh, and yes, yeah, so it definitely sounds like there's, there's certainly a need of, of massive proportions out there, even before COVID, for for parents to understand their kids and understand what they need and how to how to teach them, um, and so 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 what specifically are you able to do for these for the the parents and the kids? So I 
so kind of in one sentence, I'll give you an overview of what I can do. And then I'll explain a little bit about how that works in practice. So I offer proactive parents fail-proof tools for connecting with their children and teens so that they can feel more assured that their relationship with their child remains strong and that their child is able to shine their light in the world. So that's my big picture, what I can do for you. What that really means is that if you are a mom or a dad with a really little one, I can help you with the fundamentals of why don't we overreact when a little one has a temper tantrum? Why is it important to validate our child's feelings? Um, when we're dealing with young children in the midst of this pandemic, um, how do we create boundaries, but also some ease in the way our lives work? With older children and teenagers, how do we create respectful, loving relationships that allow us to say, Right now, mommy or daddy can't help you because I'm trying to teach a class or be interviewed on a podcast. And instead, you know, give your children all the love and connection they want in the moments that you're able to so that they feel safe and secure in order to respect those boundaries when you need to set them. Um, so those are some very practical things that I've been offering people recently. Um, one other aspect, which is a little unusual about my work, is because I've been a teacher educator for over a decade, I'm also very able to help parents make decisions in the midst of this pandemic and in general about what are the best choices for their children and their families in order to keep their children on track, quote unquote, educationally, but also keep some sanity and some um, emotional peace within their, their households and within their lives. That, that sounds very valuable uh, right now. So, so what are some of the, the mistakes that you see parents make most often that maybe they don't even know they're making, but that, that once you identify them, you can, you can get results. And in other words, for parents who are listening, what is it that they should be checking for in their own behavior that might be uh, some of the low hanging fruit to fix? One of the first things that we all need to either learn or remind ourselves is that children are more like us emotionally than they are intellectually. So a child as young as 18 months, two years old, can feel just as intensely as we as adults do. They can pick up on the emotional energy of an environment just as easily as we can, but they have no words to express it. They know they have no capacity to have any understanding of it. They can't explain it to you. And if we can start by just understanding that our children feel just as big feelings as we do, whether they're a baby or a 15-year-old. Their feelings are just as intense as ours are as an adult. So if we can start by first coming back to our own kind of emotional centers before we become reactive or reactionary with our children, that's going to pay off dividends um, because our children are going to respond best to us, especially in the midst of what right now is a whole lot of crisis parenting. We are living in a global 
pandemic. We are living in a crisis. And so all of us have escalated nervous systems and our children are no different. And that's why everybody's experiencing these much more escalated levels of anxiety. And if we can take care of, you know, put our own mask on, get our own emotions regulated, then it's much easier to help our children feel safe and secure and connected to us so that we can help them manage their emotions. Um, and the younger they are, the less able they are to do that without our support. And funny thing, when they hit puberty and enter adolescence, they can become just as dysregulated as a toddler. And so we also need to remember that teenagers are not little adults. They're actually more like toddlers emotionally. They don't want to hear that, but that really is the neuroscience and the biology of early adolescence, especially. Wow. And, and as you're talking about that, I'm reminded of, so I have a, a six-year-old myself, uh, and the thought comes to mind, so she's she's afraid of being alone. Um, and so to me, of course, it's absurd because we're in a thousand square foot apartment, so she's never alone. I'm never more than 52 feet away from her because... I can't get more than if she stands in one corner of the living room and I stand in the closet in the bedroom, we're about 52 feet apart. Um, and, and it's interesting because, you know, I can be in my office. She'll be in the, in the living room. We're in different rooms. She's fine for you know three hours. And then, and then I mentioned I'm going to bed and suddenly she's like, no, 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 no. You can't go to bed without me. Like I'm leaving the land of the, the awake. And of course to my adult brain, I'm like, I'm not even going anywhere. I'm going from one room to another. I'm no further away. But to her mind, um, and it's very real to her, obviously, that that me going to sleep is um, is a greater departure than simply being in a different room. And and you know, think about kind of validating that because it's it's obviously absurd as it is to me, very real to her. Absolutely. And so for especially, you know, in times of higher stress, which is kind of like every moment right now. Mm-hmm. Um, Children under the age of seven or eight are still developing their nervous system to feel safe and secure on a day-to-day basis. And they pick their safe people as kind of their safety blankets as they get a little bit older. So whereas a baby might just need to be held or a toddler just needs to be held when they're feeling like that, five, six, seven-year-olds are more like, oh my gosh, you can't go to bed without me. You're going to leave me. I'm going to be alone. It's the end of the world. But it's still coming out of that same um, neurologic place where they're feeling panicky because if daddy goes to sleep and I'm still awake, maybe I'm going to be in danger. And this is the age when you think about um, all the cartoon fears they come about that they're afraid of the dark they're afraid of being alone they're afraid of a monster under their bed dot 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 we've had a million movies made about this but it's Mm -hmm. very real it's very much this developmental stage where a lot of these what we consider irrational fears um become very embodied because between the ages of three and seven, their imaginations are often bigger than their intellects. So they can imagine from one feeling all of the possibilities in the universe. And a lot of them might be really scary for these kids. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense that uh, that that they might you know, might have trouble. And, and of course, you know, I think too about adults uh, out there who are terrified of, of thing, other things that I consider you know, quite absurd, like 
afraid of wearing a mask because it's part of creeping uh, yeah, lizard invasion or something. Um, and so, you know, I can imagine with the the uh, rational capacities of a child um, that some of the things can feel very, very real and, and that can be challenging for a parent to, to process. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and so, so, so what are some tips um, that you would offer to parents kind of as, as they're making the decision, should I homeschool? Should I send them back to school? Should I, um, you know, go live on a Tibetan <laughs> monastery and, and uh, just eat rice or, you know, what, what would you, what would you recommend to parents to help discern that? So the first thing I would say is do a deep dive in your own, into your own sensibilities about this. Like, are you completely freaked out about sending your children back to school even for one second a week? If the answer to that is yes, then I would love to talk to people about all of your options between virtual to homeschooling to different forms of homeschooling to um, radical ways that you can deal with your kids' education if you're not going to plug into the public or private school system. So first we have to check in with ourselves. So if you have too much anxiety about sending them back face to face, let's not. Because right now the risk that they're going to have to be very unstable if they do go back right now is fairly high. Um, we're already seeing that demonstrated in um, several states and, and different levels of schooling with, you know, what happened in Georgia and what just happened at UNC Chapel Hill, clearly sending the kids back face to face is a very high risk endeavor. Now, there are people who really need to for a variety of practical reasons. Um, and even those folks, even if you're a single mom or a single dad and you think you have no other options, um, I would meet my neighbors at this point. I would find a way to see if you can create a micro network um, in the next month or two if you are really not feeling comfortable sending your kids back to school. Um, so that's a little more nuanced. Um, I can talk more about that aspect of it if you want me to. Um, but I would say the first thing is to really check in with yourself. The next thing I really recommend is checking in deeply with your child or children. Did you want to follow up? I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, go, go ahead. All right. Checking in with yourself is number one. So if you're kind of like zen about whatever ends up happening, going back to school, doing homeschooling or another option, then next step is check in with your child or children. So I have heard and seen the whole spectrum from the ter terrified um, six and seven year olds to the teenagers who say they're going to die if they have to stay home one more moment with their parents. At the end of the day, what you really need to do is figure out, is my child's fear something that is going to impact their capacity to function if I do send them back to school? And often the answer to that is yes. On the other end of the spectrum, for the kids who are saying they're going to die if they have to stay at home any longer, we have to unpack what they're missing. They're missing what used to be. They're missing the ability to freely associate with their friends and to hang out and have school the way they quote-unquote are used to it or it's supposed to be. But especially with the older kids who are 
clamoring to get back to face-to-face -face education, it's worth spending the time actually showing them like online what schools are having to do to allow kids to come back face-to-face -face and really have a deeper conversation with them. Because if they want to socialize, we may be better served having them do schooling at home and creating opportunities for them to associate with other people who are um, at our same location around risk aversion in this pandemic. Um, so really, you do need to know where your kids are at. If you send your, a child who's terrified back to the public schools or private schools in person, you're going to end up with very bad outcomes. If you don't talk through things with a child who says they're going to die if you keep them at home for the first quarter or the first semester of the school year, you're also going to end up with really bad outcomes. So it's essential that we do some deeper dives into what's going on for our children around this decision. And I, I really like what you said about you know checking in with the, the kids. I, I think some people, they, they never really register in their mind when their child stops being a baby. <laughs> and so it doesn't occur to them to ask them, uh, you know, to ask them what they think because, well, it's a child. I mean, you know, they're only 14. What can they possibly know? Uh, <laughs> you know, in, in previous times, they, they could be the head of the household at 14. Um, you know, for example, my, my, my daughter, uh, she loves doing art and we came up with a solution um, because before we bankrupt ourselves buying art supplies and then uh, turn into an episode of Hoarders with everything she made, I said, hey, why don't we sell some of the stuff you make online? Then you'll get a little extra money. And she said, oh, that'd be cool. Um, and then she said to me, and we could take some of that money and buy more art supplies to make more art to sell. This is a six-year-old unprompted who understands business reinvestment. So um, now, of course, this is my child. So naturally, uh, you're going to expect expect that sort of thing but uh but no, i think kids if you if you give them that respect you're gonna get you're gonna be surprised um but and yeah actually we want to talk about that and then i want to ask a little bit about you know some of the the homeschooling options because yeah. um, you're talking about like group homeschooling those sorts of things absolutely I'd like to hear some of those. so first i'll validate what you were just saying and your beautiful example about your daughter um yeah our our babies do become you know, children who actually have the capacity to have conversations with us about stuff. And as you just said, your daughter already has sensibilities about business reinvestment, and she's six. If we don't check in with our older kids, our eight, nine, 10, 11 year olds, we're really missing the boat in terms of mutual respect and creating a family plan that's really going to work. Um, I have the pleasure of having a six-year-old son and a 16-year-old daughter. So we have, you know, very distinct conversations that are developmentally appropriate. And my 16-year-old actually was more um, resistant to my um, plans for the fall than my six-year-old. My six-year-old just said, can I have a magic wand and wish away the coronavirus so that no one has to worry about dying from a virus? And then he said, but I'm going to be homeschooled in 2020. And that was our conversation about it. Um, <laughs> and yep. he, he knew what, I, and we live in Florida. So the, the dangers here are very real um, in a, in a much larger scale level than in some places in the country right now. Um, my daughter, on the other hand, is going to her junior year and still would like to wish away the coronavirus and also be able to spend unlimited time with her friends. So we negotiate
renegotiated. She's doing virtual school and will reevaluate at the end of the first quarter, um, which makes her feel like it's not an endless um, punishment from the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, but we had to have conversation. So now we can move on to what you wanted to talk about, which yeah. was homeschooling stuff. Do you want to start me off with a specific prompt? Yeah, well, I was kind of wondering, you know, because we think of homeschool, you think of the the kids and the parents alone together in the house and the parent has to be the teacher and and uh, lesson planner and principal and school nurse and guidance counselor and gym teacher all wrapped in one um but you mentioned a couple things that suggested socializing and homeschooling uh sort of together in the same breath and so i wonder if you talk about some of those options that that are not um you know are are not i don't remember the movie blast from the past where uh um I can't remember the actor, but they, they lived in a bomb shelter until the, the kid was 20. Yes. Um, and, yeah, just his parents and him. And I think that's kind of the image people have of, of homeschooling. They'll be really good at swing dancing and otherwise can't interact with people. Uh, just, <laughs> well, so. first of all, that is not what actual homeschooling looks like anymore. In general, <laughs> in the U.S., homeschooling takes the form of everything from children who are very introverted, who do spend a lot of time reading their own books and doing their own lessons, but still do music lessons outside of the house or will go do art lessons or um, sporting activities with other children. And that's just pre-pandemic. Like just standard homeschooling now involves a whole range of extracurriculars and um, often courses offered by local um, organizations. Um, In many places in the country, local zoos, museums, um, and even some of the community colleges offer specific programming that is available to homeschooling families where kids come together in a collective environment and do specific lessons together. So that's one end of this, the very basic end of the homeschooling spectrum. There's also, in the midst of the pandemic, something kind of cool that's emerged, which is educational pods or micro-schooling environments. And this is where a group of parents who feel comfortable with each other's contact tracing and their their social interactions with others enough to say, okay, we are safe. We've all tested negative for the coronavirus. We're going to work together to create a safe, insular environment for our children to learn together. And some of these folks are engaging with the public schools and using virtual schooling models um, and then having the kids do it together in person. Some of them are hiring um, tutors or freelance teachers to basically do one-room schoolhouses. Um, Some of them are doing a mixture of models. Um, I know of a group of people who all were connected to a private Montessori school that's not operating during the pandemic, who hired um, two of the teachers from the Montessori to create two separate pods in order to facilitate that type of learning environment for the kids, um, completely devoid of anything online, but just really using Montessori materials to do educational um, experiences for their kids. In that case, they were like five to um, nine-year-olds. So there's lots of interesting, innovative, creative stuff going on. Um, And online, you can find a lot of resources. People are are acting fast. They're being creative. And a lot of really, really 
cool and interesting stuff is coming out of it. That, that does sound very interesting. Yeah, I've always been fascinated by alternative schooling. I actually went to, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, Sudbury Valley School model. Yes. Uh, but I went to Sudbury Valley School, the original one, uh, when I was young. So, uh, And I only later realized that it has 160 spinoffs or 120, <laughs> something like that. Um, and I'm like, well, I, I went to the Sudbury Valley School, which there's maybe a thousand people in the world who are impressed by, but you might be one of them. I, I, I am <laughs> actually, you and I can have a separate conversation about that because yep. I do research on um, holistic education and mm -hmm. democratic education. And that is what Sudbury Valley School is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's a, a brilliant model because the, the, the concept of it, of course, if, if you leave, leave kids their own devices, they will want to learn and they'll get bored. I found out with my daughter you know, during the, the pandemic, uh, she beforehand, you know, when we went to school, she'd be like, oh, I want to watch more YouTube. I want to play more games. And after a month of the pandemic, she's like, I'm bored. Mm -hmm. What can I do? I want to learn something. I want to do something. Um, and, you know, I think people assume that everyone's just lazy and don't realize that a lot of times when people are tending towards recreation, you know, I want to watch TV. I want to veg out because they're burnt out. And after they have had enough recreation, they're like, okay, now what? Now what can I learn? Now what can I do? Now how can I engage um, if you give them the chance to do so and are trying to stick a fire hose down their throat and, and shove knowledge there that they don't understand why they need? Very well put. And, and I would say only a graduate of Sudbury Valley Schools could put it so well <laughs> with such oomph behind it. Um, I, I would reiterate like a lot of what you just said. Like we know this to be true. Children are hardwired to want to learn. Like we would not have survived even a fraction of the amount of time we did as a species if human beings weren't hardwired to want to learn. But our current models of traditional public education are grounded in the notion that we needed to program children during the Industrial Revolution to fit in as cogs in a prefabricated wheel. But we're living in the mm -hmm. 21st century, even before the pandemic. And if we continue to use the models from you know, 200 years ago, we're not actually meeting the needs of our children. And most of our kids, if given the opportunity, will shine their light and tell us, well, I really want to do art. I want to be an inventor. I need tools. I need options. I need the ability to learn more about dot, dot, dot. Um, that actually has a name in, in homeschooling. It's called unschooling. And mm -hmm. unschooling scary to people who are very traditionalist in their mindset about education. But people who understand um, the Summerhill model out of the UK and the Sudbury um, model out of the US will understand why this works so well. Unschooling parents completely pull their kids out of the traditional education model and then support them and facilitate them in following their passions and their bliss. And so we have unschooled kids who are getting into college as young as 14 and 15. We've got unschooled kids who are like world champion um, sports, um, you know, participants, the whole range. And unschooling gets a bad rap by a lot of traditionalists because people are afraid that kids are not going to learn what they're supposed to if they're not forced to. The reality is, is that we have very little evidence from unschooling research that kids will not learn to read and write and do basic mathematics in the midst of following their passions. 
Yeah, and, and that's the way I find as, as a coach, because um, a lot of what I do is get people out of their miserable, soul-sucking, mind-grinding jobs and into their passion. And suddenly, you know, someone who had no motivation, no ambition, uh, showed up to work late, uh, maybe, you know, wasn't working that hard, watched a lot of TV. When they suddenly discover they have something to do, all of a sudden they're working 12 hour days. They're working weekends. Uh, they, they become passionate and exciting. And, and someone who could never sell before can now sell because they're not selling. They're just talking about what they, they're excited about. And it's the same way with kids. You, know, you get out of their way. And all of a sudden, you know, this kid who didn't really care about school um, or, you know, didn't care about math, but now they want to be a, a they want to get into theater and they want to do lighting design. Well, now they need geometry. And now they're learning math they could never know before. I mean, I, I find that my daughter, too. She didn't want to learn to read until she suddenly discovered that um, all the until she I finally got it through to her, really, that all the menus and video games are words and if you could learn those words you can operate the menus you know to be like hey dad what's this thing mean she can just read it um and you know once it had a use she's like oh now i want that skill i'm going to get it and that's what we find over and over again is that once kids see the value in what we're trying to teach them they actually get so inspired that they have what's called a rage for mastery and that may mean that they jump from pre-literacy skills to reading a third grade level book in a matter of a month, which is not what our schools want or expect. And it may mean that then they, they pause their reading skills for a while and hyper-focus on something else. And mm -hmm. this jaggedness principle is being talked about, about uh, from a bunch of researchers, including a man by the name of Todd Rose at Harvard right now, who's really talking about this idea of the end of average, the idea that there really isn't an average human being. We're all very complicated. And in different contexts, we have different skill sets. And bringing that back to the conversation we're having, I think that's something really valuable that we can help parents understand, is that just because your child is not super passionate about reading you know dear jane books but they're really passionate about pokemon well why don't we let them be excited about reading because you have a pokemon book or because there's yep. a video game menu um so it's finding those sparks those ways of engaging intrinsic motivation rather than this carrot and stick model of trying to extrinsically motivate learning which in general doesn't work very well it never has it probably never will Yep. And I, I think one of the, the long-term effects I see working with people, both, you know, now that I'm coaching professionally, but, but for years, I, I would just kind of coach as a hobby, um, is people who have never really known excellence. Because if you're not great at sports or academics, you're not excellent in school. You know, if you're really good at something else, if you're really good at, say, business or really good at sales or really good at, um, I don't know, video games, <laughs> nobody recognizes that when you're a kid. They care about what are your grades or what are your sports. And if you're not excellent there, you're mediocre. And and that's how they rate you entirely. And, you know, everyone's great at something, whatever it might be. And we want people to be to work in their greatness. Uh, you know, it, if somebody's great, you know, great like you are at, at teaching some teaching parents to teach their kids, that's what you should be doing. You shouldn't be doing something else. You know, you, you shouldn't be working in an office. You shouldn't be um, washing cars. You should be teaching parents how to how to, to maximize their kids. You know, I, uh, and I, I think so many people are encouraged to work in their mediocrity because the system is, is so focused on this is the curriculum, do the curriculum, 
figure it out. And you have articulated exactly why I am so passionate about the work I do, because I do believe, like you do, that everyone has their own form of genius in the world. And the best thing we can do for them, whether it's you as a coach or me as a parenting coach and an educator who's mm-hmm. also a psychologist, is to help people connect with their own genius and support them in shining it in the world. Um, And that's exactly what I want to help parents do for their children. And as a, you know, side effect, hopefully a lot of these parents will also dig a little deeper into their own wheelhouses and align with what they do best. Yeah. And and that's that's one of the things I find, um, find unfortunate is that information learnings are not traveling from my industry to, to, uh, to the teaching world. Um, you know, it, just little things like we were, we were on a, a call, uh, with, with our, our daughter's school. And I was saying, you know, why don't you do live teaching? Why are you doing recorded? Why don't you do a live zoom with the kids? They said, well, not all the kids can be on at the time the zoom is happening. I'm like, then you record it and you make the recording available. I, we've been doing this with, with webinars for 20 years and, it never occurred to the teachers to say, well, how has everyone else solved this? Because, you know, it, with business, it's general geography, not not pandemics. But, you know, we've been doing webinars for decades because if I want to teach people around the country, I can't do it in person. Um, and, and I think so many other concepts. And, and of course, also, you know, the, the, the results of coaching are immediately seen. If If I'm doing well, you're making more money. If I'm not doing well, you're not. And I better change what I'm doing or help you change what you're doing. Whereas in school, the results aren't seen for 10, 15, 20 years. And you're do, you have to do longitudinal studies and, and be like, I don't know if this is, works, but we've always done it this way. So it can't be that bad, right? And so I'm one of those radicals within that space, within the space of education and parents, because I'm saying, look, we know models that work better than the way it has been. And we know why they work better. And so although it hasn't been universalized, this is the other problem in education is that it's way too siloed by school districts, by school buildings, and we're not sharing best practices and benchmarks the way that the business world and the coaching world do. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that I'm also very passionate about is benchmarking best practices within education and within the work I do with parents. Um, And one of the best practices for this moment in education is doing live virtual education that can be recorded and shared with the children who can't be there live, right? Just as you put it. Um, That's not novel. It's not innovative. It's just that education is more resistant to change for a variety of reasons. Um, Part of it is that we don't have, you know, innovation officers in most schools. We don't have resources to be put into um, best practices and benchmarking work so that everybody who's doing all this cool stuff globally around education is actually sharing that in a robust fashion. And that's something that I, I would like to see change because of the pandemic. You know, I'm hoping that people are cross-talking a bit more and that parents are, are actually valuing the importance of innovative, thoughtful, caring teachers for the first time maybe in their entire lives. Yeah, and and to the credit of the Groton Public Schools, where my daughter is, um, <laughs> overall it's a very innovative system. Um, but it's it's not built to be 
rapidly innovative like businesses because schools rarely have to deal with sudden something suddenly changed you know rapid innovation in the education system is five ten years uh, rapid innovation in business is five to ten months yeah or or weeks or days <laughs> sometimes hours depending on, on what you're looking at so um, yeah, absolutely and i think this this moment in human history offers a whole lot of opportunity like if i could say there's an amazing silver lining it's for education and for families is that we can lean into um, this moment to create real change that will transform the way that we um, parent our children and the way we educate our children. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, so unless you, do you have any final comments? Uh, Cause our, our 25 minute <laughs> podcast is uh, interview is coming into its 35th minute, which is totally awesome because I've had a great time. And I'm fascinated by this topic. So, um, but, but before I break an hour, we should uh, <laughs> we should wrap up. So, so do you have any final comments to share before we before we conclude? Well, I'll I'll plug myself a little since oh. we're a business coach. I I will by all means. <laughs> That I um I do work actively as a parent coach who helps parents with all the stuff that we've been talking about today and a whole lot more. Um, and my website is um drmishtish.com and I am doing some free webinars coming up as well as offering some smaller workshops and support groups over the next month. So right, and will they will they find their the webinars on your website? They will. And is that Dr. Mishtish or D-O-C-T-O-R Mishtish? DrMishtish.com. DrMishtish.com. And that'll, of course, be in the show notes. So people can can click on that and get there. And, of course, by being in the show notes, you get additional SEO boosts. <laughs> that's an inbound link. So another great reason to be on more shows. Right. It is wonderful. Uh, and, and so besides your website, are there any other ways people can find you? Are there uh, – Yeah. If, Facebook, Instagram. I, what else I, do you have? I am on Facebook and Instagram as um, at Dr. Mishtish. And I also am going to share um, in, I will share with you my um, Facebook book group for parents, as well as my search engine contact and bio link. Okay. Very good. <laughs> so yeah, I'll, and I'll be actually joining those myself as well, because um, I, I would like to get some more of this information myself, having a child and being fascinated by the topic. But of course, you know, when I was younger and had more time to, to worry about this stuff, uh, was not when I had a child, and now I have the child, and I'm much busier. So, of course. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, wait, I'm vaguely aware of this knowledge. And of course, the worst thing is when you have knowledge and do not act on it. Yes, um, indeed. <laughs> we want to like, for knowing better and doing better, not, whoops, I knew that a long time ago and I forgot about yeah. it. I knew exactly what the answer was. Why didn't you use it? I was too busy. Yeah. But I knew it, and that's that should count for something. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it's been a, a joy to be on your podcast, and I look forward to connecting with some of your listeners, I hope. Yes, yes. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. You may have noticed this show ran a little long. As we were approaching the end of our usual time, I was so fascinated by the conversation that I decided to just keep it running. Children have such a powerful natural drive to learn, and there are so many amazing systems of learning out there that it is really a tragedy that our public school systems fail so many of our students. 
I recently saw an article about a teenage girl who posted on TikTok asking where math came from. In the course of the video, you could see that her school not only failed to teach her the math, but science, history, and a general sense of how the world works. Fortunately, it had not succeeded in snuffing out her desire to learn. My love of learning and helping people discover their potential is what draws me to coaching. School is not the only place that stifles potential in our culture. In school, we're taught to sit down and shut up. But in the adult world, we get equally destructive advice. Go to school, get a good job. Or, in an economy like this, you should count yourself lucky just to have a job. And of course, thank God it's Friday. All of these messages tell us to accept our lot in life, accept that we'll always struggle, accept that we'll never feel fulfilled, Awful, awful messages, and I take great joy in countering them and teaching people what is really possible for them. In just under a month, we are releasing the first episode of the second season of the Guy Who Knows Guy podcast. It'll be focused on answering your questions, solving your problems, and helping you discover that potential I was just talking about. Stick around after the credits for a sample of the upcoming season. The Guy Who Knows a Guy podcast is produced and hosted by Michael Whitehouse. Our theme song is composed by Patrick Howard of Four Unicorns Design. Other music and sound effects are from Benjamin Harvey Design by way of freesound.org and filmmusic.io. Special thanks to Pat Helmers of Habanero Media for all the great advice he gave me on relaunching the show. Find me on the web at www.guywhoknowsaguy.com. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to this podcast and leave a review. You can also follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash theguywhoknowsaguy. Please share this show with people you think might be interested. This is Michael Whitehouse, the guy who knows a guy, reminding you that it's not what you know, it's who you know, and how much you're willing to help them. And now a sample of Season 2 from the Guy Who Knows a Guy podcast. Our next question is from Bob from Newton, Massachusetts. He says, I got laid off back in April, and I just lost the enhanced unemployment, that extra $600 the federal government was giving. I'm running out of money. I've been applying to, for jobs online, but I've only gotten two interviews, and neither of those have called me back. What should I do? Well, in my book, I have a chapter that explains that I only actually send resumes out through online job sites if I don't really want the job. And you'll have to read the book to understand how that makes some sense. But the challenge with those kinds of jobs, job sites and you know, going into the grinder of job seeking... Now, some people have success with it. And if you're having success, great, awesome. But if you're not, it's probably because you're in some field where your skills and your unique talents aren't standing out. So you're ending up in a stack of jobs. How easy is it to apply for a job? You click apply now, automatically sends it, maybe write a cover letter. And if they print it out, which they might not even, it could be a thousand pieces of paper. It could be five inches tall of resumes. What are the chances you're even going to be seen, let alone spoken to? Many of these uh, companies use algorithms to sort through their job leads. And so that's just not where you want to be, right? You're not a cow working through a cattle yard being just shuffled through. You want to be a person with skills and talents and strengths. This is what I do in my coaching very often is I help people identify their unique talents and strengths and what they can get paid for them and what it's worth. Well, so let's assume you do not want to launch your own business because if you do, that's a whole different thing. But you want a job. So how do you get one? You need to get out of the cattle yard. Stop being pushed along through the process, and you need to talk to people who can actually hire you. Now, this is something you learn in sales. You've got to talk to a decision maker. You can't talk to just anyone around. You can't talk to the, the receptionist. They're not going to buy. You need to talk to a decision maker. That means you need to talk to the hiring manager, the boss, the vice president, whoever is the company who makes the decisions or influences the decisions. 
Well, how do you do that? You certainly can't put an application that way. So you need to find other ways around to reach them. Here's what I recommend. There's an entire chapter on this in my book, The Guy Who Knows a Guy. Here's this, the process I recommend. Pick something you really, really want to do. Not something you think you can kind of get by on. Something you're excited about. Something you really want to know about. You know, let's say, well, I've always worked in accounting because I've got a bookkeeping background and that's just what I do. Do you love it? If you love it, awesome. But if you don't, what have you always wanted to do? Well, maybe you've always wanted to, to work in uh, art museums. Sure, let's take that for example. Well, make a list of everyone you know who is near or in that industry, in any area, whether they're the janitor who works at the museum, the CEO, anyone. Make a list of everyone who's a close contact of yours, or even a remote contact, someone who might recognize your name if you say it. Call them up. Say, hey, Joe, I'd love to pick your brain. I'm going through a bit of a career change, and I really, I just love the art world, and I'd love to get into it. I don't even know how, but you're in it uh, in some way. I'd love to just grab a cup of coffee or get on a Zoom call. Pick your brain. Get your thoughts as to who I should talk to, what I should do, what I need to know, you know. Just, just want to get your advice. Most people, especially if they're your friend or even your acquaintance, will gladly give you 15, 20 minutes of their time to give you some advice. You're not asking for anything. You just want to get their advice. And people love giving advice. Why do you think I started a podcast all about giving advice? People love giving advice. Makes them feel smart. So you go talk to Joe. He gives you advice. Now, be an active listener. Write down notes. Say things to acknowledge that you've heard him. Never, never, never argue with the people you're doing this with. Oh, my God. Never argue with them. They are geniuses. At least make them feel that way. Now, some people you're going to meet with are going to be nutballs. That's fine. Don't tell them that. Make them feel good. And then ask them, hey, who else should I talk to? You know, working down this path, who else do you think might have some ideas, some more thoughts that might help? You are trying to make your problem their problem. You're trying to build that connection, build a relationship with them. As you do this, what's going to happen is that they're going to become invested in your problem. When your problem becomes their problem, they're going to want to solve it. So maybe introducing you to some people they know is going to solve it. Or maybe just offering you a job is going to solve it. You're not going in looking for a job, but if you happen to be talking to the vice president, the president, the owner, the CEO, there's a good chance they'd be like, you know what? You seem like a good guy. How many people have you talked to in this process? How, how many people have you talked to researching this? Well, I'm up to 27 now. Holy moly. You've talked to 27 people just to learn about the industry? Yep, yeah, 27 so far. i got six more appointments of people I'm going to talk to. Wow. You have now proven to them that you're a hard worker, you're committed, you can follow through a project. That's ultimately all they're trying to do in an interview anyway, is figure out who might be that person, and you just showed them you're that person. And here's the thing, too. If a thousand people who need a job listen to this podcast, I would be shocked, shocked, if more than 30 actually took my advice and did the work. Most people won't do the work. So if you do the work, it puts you way, way, way ahead. Good luck, Bob. And, uh, you know, it's a tough world out there if you're a stranger. But if you start to get to know people, you'll find the world gets much, much friendlier. JV Connect is coming up quick, December 12th and 13th. If you are looking for a networking event where you can meet people who aren't looking to just pitch you or take, but actually want to collaborate, build strategic partnerships, joint ventures, maybe even find some mentors, some coaches, people to support you, accountability partners, who knows? If you're looking for good people in an environment that's not stressful, but is set up to give you a lot of great connections in an efficient amount of time, check out JV Connect. JV-Connect. Dot com. That's jv-connect.com.
www.thebigcartoonnetwork.com, December 12th and 13th, 2023. We'll see you there.